Welcome, everyone. My name is Diane Fleet, and you are here listening to KCADV's podcast series. Today, we'll be talking about language access with Olivia Spradlin. Olivia is with KCADV. She is the Senior Program Specialist, Meaningful Access and Strategic Partnerships. So, Olivia, thanks for joining us today and talking about language access. Thank you, Diane. So, I know in the past, we've talked a little bit about meaningful access. And so, today, we're going to pivot a little bit and make sure that we're understanding what language access Access is, why it's important um, for our folks primarily that are doing direct service work, advocacy work, a little bit with our shelter programs, but at the same time, anybody who's listening in that is working with the public and making sure that their services are available, it's a good time to take a little bit of a pause and making sure that we are equitably available for folks that have limited English or that language might be a barrier to our services. So so can you talk a little bit why that's important, maybe some of the federal definition and, and why we need to take this time to to revisit? Sure. And it's actually how KCADV built Meaningful Access has its roots in language access and has its roots in the definitions of and in the, the way that you provide that. So it's almost backwards that we talked about meaningful access first, and now we're talking about language access because this was really the birth of that. In terms of why language access is important. If you're working in an organization that's receiving federal money, it's something you have to do. It's something that as part of not discriminating against folks who don't have great English proficiency, it's part of your grant requirements. It's in VOCA, it's in DOJ, it's in VAWA, HHS and HUD, and it's also just part of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So something we got to do. It's also something that's important that we do when we're talking about reaching populations that are underserved, populations that have extra barriers, populations that just maybe need like a little extra love and care in order to leave a domestic violence relationship, in order to leave an intimate partner relationship. Like we want to be available to those folks and, and not have our own practices be a barrier for them being able to get help, for them being able to, to live safe and healthy lives. It's um so the the material that you gave me prior to this there is a laundry list of funding agencies and programs that require that we have language access. So if you're receiving VOCA dollars, ADA, VAWA, HUD, DOJ, Health and Human Services, all Cabinet for Health and Family Services, all of those, it is critically important and it's something that you will be monitored on and something that you are required to do. But I think the second part of what you said is the most important, right? Is if we're doing good services, if we truly are trying to get services out to sometimes our most vulnerable folks, which we'll talk about a little bit later, then we want to make sure that we are reviewing our policies and procedures and that we're making things as accessible as possible for all folks that might need to be needing us and needing our services, particularly those with limited English. There's a a sentence in here that you also say, this is not just Lexington and Louisville too. And I like that as well, because sometimes I think people have a tendency just to sort of tune out. I don't have a big, you know, population of Spanish-speaking folks. I don't have a big population of something. But this really is geographically, you might have, you know, people that are deaf and hard of hearing mm-hmm. that are coming in. You may have refugee and immigration settlement folks coming in. You may have lots yeah, of people. I, I think we go straight to Lexington and Louisville as examples of the communities within Kentucky that maybe this feels like it's the largest issue. And and those are the communities where there are more refugees or more immigrants. And really, we have a lot of other communities throughout the state that 
to have some diversity <laughs> in regards to this. I think of both Owensboro and Bowling Green, which are refugee resettlement sites. And Bowling Green has been that for many, many years. And then I also think of some of the areas in the state where we have military bases. Hopkinsville and Christian County come to mind of states that are counties that when we look at actual just demographics are actually pretty diverse counties. And then when you mentioned Bowling Green, I was thinking of, you know, the university. So if you've got colleges and universities that are attracting folks from coming in, I think that certainly can elevate um, the needs of the population as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I know a few years ago, and it's probably, I have a COVID blanking of time, right? There's like a minus three years in my life. So it's, it's really been some time. All of the member programs with KCADV were required to create a language access plan. And so I think folks that are tuning in, it might be time to kind of brush that off. It might be time, if you're unaware of that, to talk to your supervisor, manager, executive director and go, do we have a language access plan? Because I assure you that you do, but it might be good to revisit it and make sure you're current. Yes. Yeah. And and all of you at KCADV, at KCADV member programs certainly do have a plan that provides for language access and provides for limited English proficiency persons and what your own internal policy procedure plan is for that. Can you um, talk? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, can you talk a little bit about what the content of that should look like? And for folks that are not member programs, it might be something that you kind of borrow and steal a little bit from KCADV, who I think is often at the forefront of making sure that services are available. So if you're with the Children Advocacy Center or you're with another you know, community health care system, you might want to make sure that you have something like this in place as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's going back to how language access is really defined in the federal register. So all of our language access plans have components where we're addressing notice. So how are you providing notice and the availability of the service free from charge? What are the available and accessible documents that you would need for someone who has limited English proficiency to participate in your program? So like, do you have your intake forms in other languages? Do you have them in Spanish? That's a big one in any of all of our areas. Some other languages that, that we see a lot of, um, Swahili, Japanese, Russian, there's a Creole occasionally that pops up that we think about. Recently, we've been investing in translating some things into Afghan, given the refugee population that has just been resettled in Owensboro. Bowling Green, again, has historically been a refugee resettlement site. And so Bosnian is one that's prevalent in Bowling Green. Other components of that meaningful access plan include an investment in policy and procedures, so do you have the actual like policy that when somebody calls in on your crisis line, how your advocate that's receiving that call is going to handle it? Do you have a policy for how somebody is scheduling interpreters? That kind of thing. Skilled staff is another part of that. So is your staff able to uphold cultural competence? Is your staff able to provide non-discriminatory service? And what, what supports are you as an institution really providing to your staff so that they can carry out that? Periodic training and monitoring. So making sure that staff are trained on your policies and procedures and on the plan you want them to use and on the importance of these things. And then also monitoring. 
So how often are you looking back through that set of policies and procedures and making sure that they're still up to date, that they still are what they should be? For our programs, they're probably going through this with, you know, justice and public safety cabinets and even with us, with KCDV through their CHFS monitoring on a relatively regular schedule. I know I, I'm I'm sort of notorious a little bit with this on podcasts is to completely out all of my failures. And so the other day we had a woman that had come into shelter who was hearing impaired and it took us a little bit to remember how to get on the video translation piece to remember because in my day, TTY was it, right? Everything mm-hmm. was TTY. And so now there's so many different, you know, different ways that you can use sign language, in-person interpreters, video interpreting, like all these things. And we had not kind of followed up on it in about six months. I mean, it really hadn't been long, but it'd been about six months since we needed it. We had some new staff and I was just furious that folks were not, you know, meeting with this woman appropriately. And she was getting angry that people were just writing her notes. And I was like, of course she's <laughs> she's yeah. angry. She has every right to be angry. It's not how she wants to be communicated with. No. And it was, you know, it was, it'd be one thing to kind of say dinner's ready. It's another thing to get someone's whole history and what's going on and supportive advocacy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, really who I was mad at was my own self as a supervisor that I had not trained appropriately new staff coming in. So I guess I always want people when they're listening to podcasts and and these series is to go, we all make mistakes. We all sometimes get busy doing other things. This is really critical. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you do need to revisit because you don't want to do it at the time that someone comes into shelter who needs that. You want to have a game plan already ready to go. Yes, we want to be prepared so that when someone does come to us in crisis, that we are not creating more crises for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another part that you have too, you know, so we've kind of now brushed off our language access plan. We've sort of looked through, we made sure that it's up to date. We're making sure that staff, you know, know how to access different, Mm -hmm. um, you know, our paperwork is good. We've got documentation in different languages and things. How do we make sure that folks that need us know that we're ready for them, that we are an agency and a program that is available to assist? Mm -hmm. So that's part of the notice component of meaningful access. And something that I heard the other day that I, I know I've heard it before, but it just, it struck me again, is that access moves at the speed of trust. I saw that. Can you talk about that? Because I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. Yeah. So people have to trust you. Like, they've got to be able to trust you to receive your services. And with that though, how do you and, begin to build that relationship? Is yeah. there any best practices in relationship building to communities or or just getting that information out there so that folks who don't know they need you yet but might need to need you in a few months? Like how do you how do you do that? So with notice, I think it's do you have social media in other languages? Do you have those brochures ready to go in other languages? Do you have, again, going back to components of meaningful access, and I know we're speaking a little beyond notice here, do you have those other documents available in other languages? Do you have a good reputation with that community? I think is a big one. Or a reputation at all. Or or exactly, like, you know, are they kind of maybe not coming to you for services because they've not had the best experiences in the past? And so... I think being present in those communities is important. You know, understanding the intersectionality of domestic violence with other identities. 
um, is also really important with this. So, you know, are you sitting at, like, if you've got a migrant network, I know Lexington does, and Diane and I are both in Lexington, so it's an easy example, I think, for us to default to. Are you a part of those spaces? Global X, right, that works on all things globalization in Lexington and multiculturalism and pluralism. Are you having a seat at that table as well? And are you visible in terms of your seat at those tables so that, that people who are who have those identities can see you as showing up for them and being engaged in the, the important issues that are affecting their lives? I, I think is important. Absolutely. And I, the trust, it really caught my attention again when I saw that moving at the speed of trust. And I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure what you meant, but I, I knew it had something to sort of do with that. I will say I had an attorney call us the other day. I was wanting to get some financial assistance, just food. It was just like, you know, it wasn't like a thousand dollars, just like she needs food. And she had been told by her community to not reach out to anybody to not trust anyone. So she did have this relationship with the attorney who then made a connection to us and said, hey, can you help with a food basket? They don't have winter coats. Do you have anything like that? So we put together you know, a pretty robust care package for this person in hopes again of building trust. But our, our sadness was that her community had said, do not trust anyone. I'm sure there was very valid reasons of that, but at the same time, maybe a little overreaching because this woman was to a degree maybe kept from reaching out. She didn't know who to trust, I guess, is the, is the thing. And so how do we as programs get to her? How do we take our information to her? It's not her responsibility. It's our responsibility. Yeah. And I think especially when we're talking about undocumented populations that there is, you know, for real and, and valid reasons, a lot of concern around trust. So there's just so much at stake for them if they come forward and, you know, try to seek help somewhere. And then in that, you know, just this, the stakes of what that can be in terms of leading to family separation, leading to deportation, leading to incarceration and detention, like there's just so much at stake. And so the risk of that sometimes is, you know, greater than the risk of staying in a bad situation right. where they maybe know what to expect. They can navigate that. And they that can navigate that and there's some predictability to it, right? So so yeah, access moves at the speed of trust. That's a, I, I love that. That's, that's fabulous. So shifting a little bit, right? We're building relationships. Hopefully folks are reaching out to us. We're reaching out to them. We're making our services available. And so we want to talk a little bit about the tools that are available to us. I sort of dated myself a second ago by thinking the only tool in the world is TTY, right? And so I remember when KCADV would monitor us 17 years ago, I'd go pull the TTY phone out and I, it was in a box. <laughs> I'd rush it out to the front desk because I knew somebody was going to come and go, here's the phone, you know. And now, you know, there's just such an amazing array of, of ways to help with communication. You know, I was, about six months ago, there was a woman, I, I'm, I think maybe she spoke Swahili, I'm not 100% sure now, I can't recall. And I saw an advocate and her walking out, because we've got land, right? So they're walking out in the field, but they had the, the translation right on their phone. And so it was really nice. You know, it wasn't all just sitting in an office, very sterile, right? They were they were able to communicate, certainly with a teeny bit of a barrier, but, but the barrier before would have been just not walking out in the field, right? And we wouldn't have taken a walk. So there's so much more to do. And I, I hope folks, again, that are tuning in, take a little second and look at all the different ways that with technology and you know, there's all kinds of stuff that, that we can 
be more robust in how we're working with individuals. But if we are using these tools or interpreters, I think there's some pieces that we want to make sure if it's if it's good, if it's valid, how are we working with interpreters? Do you want to talk a little bit about the ethics sure. around that? Well, I, I want to start back with where you did, which is what tools do I have available to me as an advocate? And just want to kind of, again, remind that those are written in your LEP and in your language access plan, if you're a KCADV member program, instructions for how to access all of these things are in that plan. And Diane, I'm also going to think back to the example you gave me where you said you had a lot of new staff. And so I think something programs can do that would be a really great like best practice is in your onboarding, include some training on the language access and these tools that we're going to talk about. Which I failed at. Yeah. Build it into your onboarding process, right? Build it into your onboarding process. So for what what tools do we have available to us, right? KCDV, most of our member programs, we work with a really wonderful company called Language Line. And through them, we have access to phone interpreters. We also have something called VRI, which is video remote interpreting, which is an app that you put on your phone and... You know, you have a code that's specific to your program that you put in when you download the app. And then what you can do is you can pull it up and it has this list of, it's got to be over a hundred languages on it, that the language is listed both in English and in the language itself. And someone can like point to the one they need and you click on it. And it requests an interpreter in that language. It's amazing. And then, and then it pulls up that interpreter in video on your phone for you to be able to communicate. And it's a really great tool, especially for um, ASL, folks who need ASL access. With the language line, similar to that VRI phone app, we can also patch interpreters both just through voice only or through video into Zoom calls and into different telehealth platforms. How you do that is absolutely in your language access policy. Um, The platform I'm most familiar with is Zoom. So what you would do is, is you can just add a call down at the bottom of your Zoom, right? You have that option. And then there's a specific phone number you're going to add in. And just like if you were using it on your phone, somebody's going to pick up and go, okay, what language do you need? And you tell them. And then they go find you an interpreter. Clearly, if you're working with someone who needs ASL, probably choose the video option, right? <laughs> if you're if you're working with someone um, who, you know, needs Spanish or Swahili or something like that, you could probably choose the audio, right? You can also, through Language Line, schedule interpreters ahead of time. So if you know you've got a meeting with someone at 2 o'clock and there's a particular interpreter through the Language Line that they like working with, you can talk to the Language Line and schedule that person ahead of time to be there in your 2 o'clock Zoom meeting. And then you don't have to, once you're in the meeting, go, oh, no, I have to patch all these people in, right? They're already there and they're already ready to go. So that's another good option. And that's not just Zoom. That's also... um, phone and and other things as well. We sometimes have, when we haven't done things a little bit, right, it seems always sort of scary. We don't quite know what to do it where it just is cumbersome. It feels like it's cumbersome. Again, practice with it, pull out the document, see what your password is. How do you schedule those things? You know, it's kind of the first time we did Zoom, right? Again, I'm in COVID world. I know people did Zoom before COVID, but COVID really kind of, and now we can share documents and we can do all these things, but practice it before you absolutely need it. So Mm -hmm. take some time. And even if you just need to know how 
how to use the video interpreting, just do it with a fellow advocate, you know, just, just play around with it. Yes. And you and I were, were talking about this the other day and we're starting to get in into like some of the best practices for working with an interpreter. It's not always intuitive how to do that. And so if you're like, oh, I got this meeting coming up and like, I got to do this with Zoom and this with an interpreter and this with this, like maybe there's another advocate that can help you practice that real quick. And so one of the things that's really hard about working with interpreters is that instead of speaking to the interpreter, you still want to speak to and face the survivor you're working with, the client that you're working with and speak as if you're speaking to them. And that's a really like... That's hard. It's crazy hard. And I don't know why it's so crazy hard. I think, you know, I think I'm a polite person. So I have a really difficult time talking to, knowing there's this interpreter person that's there and not paying attention to them. I find that really difficult. And because they're speaking back to me, I have a tendency to want to speak back to them. It's just intuitively how I want to relate. I almost have to turn my head so I'm not seeing the interpreter or place them if they're, you know, if they're in person so that they're not, they're not in my visual because otherwise I I just default to that. Yeah. You feel like you're being rude because there's this person in the room that is an essential part of this communication that you're really kind of not acknowledging. It's hard. Um, And that's hard. So if, if you've never worked with an interpreter before, or even if you have and you know something, this is something you've struggled with, or it's been a while since you have, practicing it. Yes. Yeah. Or even making time, Diane, during, you know, like a staff meeting to practice it. Yep. I, I think it's a perfect thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do, re- I know to do that. I like, I know so clearly to do that and I have mm-hmm. a hard time. There are some ethics around that. So if you're setting up an interpreter beyond how you connect to them. Can we finish the best practices no. first? Yes, you may. Yes, you may. That's all right. I know. We were just, we were talking about those best practices. And so I was like, let's do it. Let's keep rolling with those. Do it. So we just talked about actually speaking to the person you're communicating with and not the interpreter. And Diane, you touched on this, but physically position yourself so you're aligned with that client or that survivor instead of the interpreter. Introduce the interpreter. Do not switch to third person pronouns. It's hard. And that's really hard. So what I mean by that is when you're speaking to the, the client or the survivor that you're speaking to, still say you, right? Speak to them. Still say you. Do you need help with us in terms of getting to this court appointment, right? Right. Do you need help with childcare for this? Yeah. As opposed to, will you ask Olivia if she needs this? Exactly. Exactly. So speak as if you're speaking to them. We want to modulate speed rather than volume, right? So we don't want to be screaming at people. But we also want to recognize that if we're speaking super quickly or if we're using euphemisms, which I'll talk about in a minute, that that might be making the interpreter's job a little harder. And that also might be making, might be kind of lessening the effectiveness of our communication. When I say don't use euphemisms or colloquialisms, we want to speak very plainly. And that's also really hard because um, some of these little sayings or like quirks of how we communicate are very baked into how we speak. But those are things that aren't necessarily going to translate well. And it, it makes that interpreter's job a lot harder. Right. You want to stop periodically, right, so that the interpreter can not have three paragraphs worth of speech to interpret all at once. And then... We also want to like maybe every now and again pause and say, I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly and then repeat it back. Create space for that. Know that meetings that you're having in these scenarios may take a little longer 
than some of your regular advocacy sessions. You might need to schedule an extra 30 minutes, right? Because you're saying this, the interpreter's saying it, your client's receiving it, the client's responding, the interpreter's talking, and then you it's back to you, right? So you might just need a little extra time for those sessions, for those meetings. Yeah, encourage the interpreter to ask you questions if there are any. And if there's any confusion over what's been communicated, speak at an even pace in short segments. We kind of talked about that. Don't use yeah idioms, euphemisms, colloquialisms. Speak directly and plainly. Is there anything else, Diane, you can think of that's in some of those? It's a little bit of a flip, but just because you said it was at the same time of use shorter sentences, don't go on for paragraph and paragraph and paragraph. It's really difficult for an interpreter to keep up with it. But I think it's also paying attention to the rhythm. So if you say just a little bit, but you're noticing that the interpreter and the and the person you're working with are talking for a long time, again, trying to facilitate that whole conversation. We, t- we do that a lot as advocates as far as how to facilitate support groups how to facilitate a room, how to be trauma-informed and how things are set up. Do the same thing as you're working with an interpreter. There's a little pre-thought, time, creating time, doing the introduction. This is how this is going to play out, getting seats positioned in the room or, or, or if it's, you know, over phone or however that works. But have a little thoughtfulness on how that process goes so that it's the most effective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You said something, but it was actually in a in another podcast. I was looking sort of through it, and I, I'm trying to find it. But it, when you said it might take about 30 minutes more or something, another thing I think that's really important to convey to the folks that you're working with that might need an interpreter is not feel like they're a pain. Yes. That you're not trying to rush them, that this is taking me longer than I thought I was running out the door. And if I stop and talk to you, here goes 45 minutes, right? But there was something that you wrote, and it was, it was about joyfully sharing this conversation and I I really liked it but I think it's in a I think it's in the conversation we're going to have in a little bit about deaf and hard of hearing but but please do stop and make sure that people know that they matter that you have time for them that if you don't know how to set up the you know um, the video relay or the video conversation that you it's important that you figure that out and that it's not cumbersome on your yeah, job and I, I think part of what you're referencing we are going to talk about in a different podcast on um, deaf part of hearing individuals and and also um, people who have disabilities and what it is is like don't be grumpy about this that's it exactly <laughs> you know? yes Someone out like these access needs are a way to show people that we care about them, that we love them, and let's try not to be grumpy about that. Exactly. And I don't think we really mean to be, but we sometimes can, you know, convey that if we're in a rush or we're in a hurry and we just know that that's going to take 10, 15 minutes, a little bit extra, but it is worth the 10 or 15 minutes plan extra. Plan for that extra time, build it yes. in. Yes. Build it in. So we've talked about some best practices in terms of of working with interpreters. Really quick, I do want to say that there are certain people who we do not want to use as interpreters, which would be children, family members. And why not? Hang on. Okay. Both family members of the person we're providing services to, but also family members of an alleged abuser. We probably don't want to use anyone who is also working with that abusive partner to be an interpreter. And I think now maybe you all can see where I'm going with this a little bit in that we want to use someone as an interpreter who can basically be seen as a little bit more of an objective party, 
who we're not going to understand as someone who has an agenda and who we're not going to have as someone who may be selectively interpreting based on what their agenda is. So when we talk about like, what are some interpreter ethics? Those are that we want the interpreter and we really need the interpreter to maintain confidentiality. We don't want them to give medical or legal advice. We need them to be able to remain impartial and we need to be able to trust them to communicate faithfully and accurately the content and really the, the context and the tone, right, of, of what's being said. So don't, we, we're going to rely on them not to paraphrase. We're going to rely on them to interpret everything that is said. That's sort um, of a tough piece, though. Can I just ask you about that? Like, it, it's a hard thing to evaluate when you don't know what they're saying, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Well, and that's why we want to go to, you know, a qualified interpreter who maybe isn't in the middle of some of this or who doesn't have a stake in a certain outcome of it because of their relationship with a family or with a child or with an abuser so that we can right? Like trust that those things are what's happening. Hopefully, you know, if an interpreter makes a mistake, they're going to acknowledge it and go backwards and fix it. Interpreters shouldn't be accepting tips or gratuity. You know, the setup we have with the language line and the contracts we have with other interpreters, they're paid that way, not through accepting tips or gratuity or favors or things like that. But yeah, that I think that impartial piece is really hard. I think it is hard, and 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 interpreters almost have a, a an added sort of piece of that, right? They're they're really just a conduit of the advocacy that's taking place. I think it would be I could not be an interpreter. Like it would be really difficult for me to not just give your opinion, give my opinion, and be human with someone, right? And I know there's humanity. I don't mean to say that, but but to really just be to just be something that is a liaison or a a conduit, really, Mm -hmm. for this conversation to occur. If I heard something that didn't seem right, I might interject. I might make a like. I think it's a really amazing uh, job for people that do it. And we also, you know, going back to kind of our own ethics and thinking about not replicating power and control and not creating coercive conditions for survivors that we're working with. That's another reason why you want an interpreter who can help you maintain that space. Right. We were talking uh, on another series piece, and it's one of those things of everybody sort of has their role, right? You know, so so one of the benefits of having an advocate with case ADV programs when you're dealing with intimate partner violence is you can show up for that person objectively. You can put that person's needs forefront, right? If you're a family member, that becomes a little more difficult because you've got a relationship. You want something to happen. You're you're invested in the outcome of how things happen. There's another piece with interpreters, right? And so so being able to stay back and being objective, just doing my job. This is my role. This is what I do, which I think adds to, I think a lot of programs have worked really, really hard to have bilingual staff, right? And so that can be fabulous and wonderful, but sometimes we might go down a wrong path a little bit or take advantage of bilingual staff or in our in our access way, limit this person's access to services only when that bilingual staff is on duty, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's lots of little pitfalls we can fall Absolutely. into. Absolutely. So I think there's a few things you're talking around here. And one is, is we haven't really talked about what discriminatory services are. And so just to do a, a quick moment on that, discriminatory services are limiting participation in a program or an activity on the basis of an aspect of identity, subjecting people from an underserved community to an unreasonable delay in a service, which is, I believe, part of the example Diane was just alluding to. 
failing to inform members of underserved populations about their right to access services and reasonable accommodations, and that those services are provided free of charge, providing services that are more limited or lower in scope than those provided to other persons. So that's what we're thinking about that we we're trying to avoid. And your language access plan helps you avoid that. It's as, spelled out. As it is. Follow it's the plan. Spelled out very clearly. Just follow the plan. And, you know, those things we were talking about with best practices with interpreters also, you know, help avoid that. Yeah. So many of our programs are utilizing bilingual advocates as a means to provide language access, to also just be more accessible And to also have a staff that's representative of the diversity of the populations that are served, which is really important. And Diane was mentioning that uh, sometimes when you have a bilingual advocate, it's really easy to say to somebody like, oh, that advocate will be on on Tuesday. Can you just talk to them? Well, that's an unreasonable delay in service. And and also, I mean, really the, the point of language access, meaningful access, is that all staff serve all persons. And that that happens in an equitable manner. And so that is um, a reason why it would be important for even your non-bilingual staff, (laughs) for your English-only staff, to be able to still provide language accesses so that we don't have these delays in services happening. And also so that we're not just putting, like, anyone who has limited English onto our bilingual staff, right? We need to show up for those people, too. It is an undue burden. It is. Right? And not that not yeah. that the person is a burden, but but it is not their sole responsibility to be all things for that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so other staff need to participate in the advocacy for those survivors and for those clients. So thinking about bilingual advocates and how we're utilizing them and what are some best practices for bilingual advocates, your bilingual advocates may still need to offer access to interpreters. And really, like, we don't want to be using the bilingual advocates as interpreters, right? Like if you've got a survivor or client who doesn't speak a lot of English and they have a court date or they have a meeting with DCBS or a caseworker, an interpreter should be provided in that. Um, And the court should be providing that or DCBS should be providing that. The advocate should not have to serve as the interpreter in that scenario. And, And some of that does go back to when we just talked about the ethics of interpreting. Those are a little different than the ethics of advocating. And so we want the advocate to be able to stay in the advocacy lane and do their best advocacy possible, right? And then we want the interpreter to stay in the interpreter lane and do the best interpreting possible. Can, one of the things, you and I had a little debate about this, right, the other day, but then it became pretty clear to me that we were maybe talking a, a little bit about two different things. Mm-hmm. So I 100% agree that a bilingual advocate should not serve as an interpreter between the survivor and another party. 100%. Mm-hmm. It's different to be an advocate and an interpreter, and there's a whole different sense of that. Sometimes you might need an interpreter even with your bilingual person if you're talking about very specialized core, medical, you know, those kinds of things that have a whole different language um, that you might kind of need that to happen. I don't think necessarily you need a interpreter if you're having conversational advocacy sessions, but you might begin to check a little bit how fluent your bilingual staff person is. Some are very just conversational. Some are really fluent, and there certainly are different dialects of things, right? Mm-hmm. So so just because someone is uh, can speak Swahili doesn't mean that they can speak. Yeah, and I and I would also offer with that that you may have survivors or clients who are working with you who would rather not be working with your bilingual advocate for some reason. True, right? And 
we would definitely need to provide them an interpreter so that they could work with the advocate that they feel comfortable with working. And in particularly if you're in a small community, there might be relationship. You know, I, I think many times in our shelter programs, we might know a family member of that individual, right? The, 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 the community is small. I have a client or a survivor that comes to live at shelter or, or non-residentially, but you may have some connection with extended folks. And so that might be too close of a community and you need to, that's something we talk about advocacy in general, right? Like you have need to, to separate yourself. Yeah, Absolutely. we need to respect the survivor's choice in that situation and part of providing access at that moment and meeting that survivor's accessibility needs is providing them with an interpreter so that they feel like they you know can have an advocate that they can have the relationship with that they need to that they trust yeah so lots of pieces and I know we're kind of getting to the end of end of this conversation I, I think the biggest thing that we want to kind of come away with is familiarize yourself with currently what is your program doing or if it needs to hone in on some things update some services maybe and then beyond just being aware of it practice it familiarize don't go into it grumpy right go into it with a lot of love and care and forethought it ta- it does take a little pre-work when we're doing some things. And then and then as we're needing, I think the last sort of piece that I was reading about your conversation, KCADB can help a lot with this. So if you're needing some help with um, how to work with an interpreter or you're needing something translated or you're needing, I don't mean to say you have translators on staff, but you're a resource for folks to reach out to you to uh, look at your process. Absolutely. And I'm, I really want to do a quick Shout out and credit here to Isela Arras, who is our COO at the moment. She is really someone who just, I mean, almost for the past two decades has been really, really championing this and working on this and built out a lot around the connections between language access and meaningful access. And it's just such a, such a wealth of knowledge and information. And I do want to give her credit. For, for doing so much of this. But yes, we can absolutely, you know, come do trainings on this. We can provide, you know, template LEP policies. We can provide, you know, help on some resources we've used. Um, we do have a Help Is Here brochure now that we have in multiple languages. Um, every year we kind of put it in a couple new and a couple more um, so we can make those available. But yeah, absolutely. We're always always happy to help and to be a resource for translation, for interpretation, for just problem solving around that in general. You know, we're, it's, somebody can call us and say, this is a really a problem we're experiencing and getting this done. And we might not have the best answer, but we may be able to help kind of guide through what are some of the things to think about to come up with the answer that works for your program and the population we're that you're trying to serve. Olivia, thank you so much. I, I, I hope people that are listening really do take a pause with this. This is a really critical population that we make sure that we have services available. Um, the impact of intimate partner violence on folks with disabilities or limited English can be high. And so we as programs need to be responsive to that. So thank you so much for having this conversation today. Um, thank you, Diane, for asking me questions and for helping and for listening and for you know saying... Yeah. This is what we're doing wrong, and this is what we're doing right, and, and for always being open to that. I am very good at saying things we're doing wrong, probably to the chagrin of some people in my program. Ah, we goofed that up, but thank you. Thank you. So again, my name is Diane Fleet. You've been listening um, to the KCADB podcast series, and I've been with Olivia Spradlin, who's a senior program specialist, meaningful access and strategic partnerships here at KCADB. Thanks so much.
This Zero V project, formerly known as KCADV, Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence, was supported by the Department of Justice Coalition's grant 15JOVW-22-GG-00889-STAT. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this project are the views of the authors and do not reflect the views of federal, state, local, and or private funders.